Let's turn their Bibles, please, to Luke chapter 23. We'd like to begin reading verse number 33. And when they were come to the place which is called Calvary, there they crucified him and the male factors, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they parted his raiment and cast lots. The people stood beholding, and the rulers also with them derided him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If he be Christ, the chosen of God. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming to him and offering him vinegar, and saying, If thou be the king of the Jews, save thyself. And a superscription also was written over him in letters of Greek and Latin and Hebrew, This is the king of the Jews. And one of the malefactors which were hanged railed on him, saying, If I be Christ, save thyself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Dost not thy fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? Then we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man hath done nothing amiss. And he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. And it was about the sixth hour, and there was the darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. The sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was rent in the mist. And when Jesus had cried with a loud voice, he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And having said thus, he gave up the ghost. Now when the centurion saw what was done, he glorified God, saying, Certainly this was a righteous man. And all the people that came together to that site, beholding the things which were done, smote their breast and returned. And all his acquaintance and the women that followed him from Galilee stood afar off, beholding these things. May God bless the reading of his word. Let us pray. Blessed Heavenly Father, as I bow in your presence, I do thank you, Lord, for another privilege and opportunity to preach the Word of God. Lord, I realize I'm as any other man, and without the touch of God, uh, that I can do nothing. I do yield myself to you, and I pray the Spirit of God would fill me and give me understanding. Lord, help me to rightly divide the Word of truth. Help me to honor you today. Speak to heart, save any be lost. Revive your people, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I want to bring you a message on the subject at Calvary. Verse 33 said, When they were come to the place which is called Calvary, there they crucified him. If you were to visit Calvary today, and some of you have uh, gone to Israel, uh, you would find a barren hill outside the walls of the old city, uh, covered with rocks, thorn bushes, and tombs, and a bus station at the base of the hill. I assume that is still there. And uh, you will also notice something very unique about this hill, this place called Calvary. Uh, and uh, there's another name that the Bible gives to it called Golgotha, or the place of a skull. And if you view this hill from a distance, it has the appearance of a skull. Uh, you would have the, the garden and the empty tomb uh, at the left of the, of the hill called Calvary there. 
Uh, they say the stone is in the British Museum, uh, but the tomb is empty. Uh, they have done tests on that tomb, and they say there is no evidence of, uh, of decay uh, or corruption in that tomb. Well, and because of that, some say that there was no, no body ever lay in that tomb. But the Bible said his flesh did not see corruption. You see, the body of Jesus did not corrupt. Now, you die in three days, you're going to be stinking uh, without embalming. But Jesus saw no corruption, and the tomb is empty. Now, if you visited there around 2,000 years ago, over 1,900 years ago, you would have seen a different scene as they led Jesus Christ with that cross upon him uh, through that narrow street. If you go there, they will lead you through the way of the cross, the Via Dolorosa, the, the path that is believed that Jesus went with the cross to be crucified on Calvary. Uh, as the, they led him there, the Roman soldiers led him uh, to be crucified. He had been beaten uh, beyond description. The Bible says in the book of Isaiah, uh, chapter 53 and verse number 3, that they hid their faces from him. Uh, that he had been, the Bible talks about they buffeted him. The word buffet simply means to ball up your fist and hit a person. So they, they smote him, they buffeted him, they put a crown of thorns upon him, uh, they put a reed in his hand, smote those thorns on his head, and those thorns were the type, kind of like a fish hook type thorn, as they pushed that in mockery upon the head of the Lord, and uh, they spit upon him, they did all this to him, and uh, they scourged him, and of course under the scourging, uh, many men would die from the scourging. Uh, the uh, whip, the Roman whip, uh, the leather with the, called the cat of nine tails, with the embedded stone or metal or glass uh, that was used, uh, there to beat the person and to scourge the person. Some would die from the scourging. The psalmist talks about his bones literally being visible where they had split the flesh open and no doubt the rib cage exposing the ribs there. Um, awful descriptions that we have in the Word of God about the suffering of Jesus Christ and we've shared that in detail in the past. But here I want you to notice the attitude as the Lord is crucified between the two thieves and uh, as the soldiers are gambling over his raiment there and the people stood beholding, the rulers, uh, the Bible said, uh, derided him. Now it was the rulers that had brought about the crucifixion who had prompted the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus. Uh, the religious crowd, if you please, the, 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 the group that was supposed to have been looking for him to come uh, are behind his crucifixion. And notice what they say there in, uh, in verse number 35. Let him save himself if he be Christ, the chosen of God. This was their attitude. If he is who he claims to be, why don't he get off of the cross? 
Uh, you know, you have this phrase used about three times, and on down in verse 37, we have the attitude of the soldiers there. And they said, uh, If I be the king of the Jews, save thyself. The, the religious rulers said, If you're the Christ, if you're the Messiah, if you're one, the one the prophets talked about, if you're who you claim to be, get off of the cross. And the soldiers said, if you're really a king, they say you're a king, they've got this title over you, king of the Jews. If you're really a king, why don't you get off of the cross? And then you come on down and the male factor there, and uh, an interesting thing to notice about the thieves, uh, you will find in, in, I believe it's in Matthew's account, that they were both mocking at the beginning. But one changes his mind. And in verse 39, one of the malefactors which will hang railed on him, saying, If thou be Christ, save thyself and us. If you're the Messiah, if you're the Savior, get off of the cross. Save yourself and save us. Now I want you to notice in each case they say, If, if thou be Christ. If thou be the king of the Jews, if thou be Christ, save thyself and us. But you know, uh, that's, that's not real faith, is it? I don't believe you get saved. Lord, if I'm a sinner, save me. Lord, if there is a God, then save me. Is that faith? I don't think so. And uh, sometimes I hear testimonies that bother me. Uh, and uh, it's not if I'm a sinner. The Bible declares I'm a sinner. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The Bible declares that Jesus is God. I must believe that in order to be saved. And uh, of course the other here answers and says, Don't you fear God? We indeed justly, we receive the due, rewards of, uh, of the due reward of our deeds, but this man had done nothing amiss. Now, there's uh, what's necessary for salvation? Repentance, faith, and confession. You say, is there repentance here? Yes. We indeed justly. We're getting what we deserve. <laughs> he, he, he recognizes his own sinful condition. And that's, the, that's uh, what is necessary in order to be saved. Then in verse 42, he said unto Jesus, Lord... Remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. Now this is real faith. Because Jesus is down on the cross just like they are. How is he going to have a kingdom? He's going to be dead in a little bit. The only way he can have a kingdom is to have a resurrection, right? And that's, what, that's what I believe and what you believe. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Amen. He believed in the resurrection. Remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. He's saying, Jesus, I believe that you're dying for my sins. I believe that you're going to get up out of the grave and you're going to have a kingdom. I want you to remember me. And the Lord says, Today shalt thou be with a man in paradise. You don't have to wait till the future. You don't have to wait till the millennial reign. You're going to be with me in paradise today. And, uh, of course, this shows that when a person dies, they go immediately uh, to heaven or hell, depending on their 
whether they're saved or lost. And so he says, you'll be with me in paradise. And all these things happen here. Uh, it brings about his salvation. He says, Lord, remember me when I comest into thy kingdom. He recognizes who Jesus Christ really is, that he's Lord, that he's God, that he's Jehovah, that Jesus Christ is the promised one. And uh, John says, uh, he that has seen me has seen the Father. I am my Father one. But what do we see here at Calvary? There's about three things I want us to look at. And as we get in the message, the first thing is the promise of God. Now, there are hundreds of promises in the Bible, but there's two main themes or promises that run throughout the Bible. And those are the promise of his first coming and the promise of his second coming. And everything hinges around those two promises uh, that are given in the Bible. In the Old Testament, the Old Testament says he's coming. The Gospels say he has come. He is here. And the Acts, the Epistles, and the Revelation tell us that he is coming again. And uh, those central themes are what the Bible is about. Now, at Calvary, we have the promise of Christ's first coming. Where was that given in Genesis 3.15? He said, I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thy shall bruise his heel. In fact, in that verse, we have both comings. We have the second coming and the first coming. Now, I notice he, he's speaking to the devil here. I'll put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. Of course, there's the promise of the virgin birth. We know the seed is of the man. But the Bible said it'll be the seed of the woman. That would take a miracle. That doesn't happen in the natural realm, but it happened in the birth of Jesus because he was born without an earthly father and was supernaturally conceived by the Spirit of God. But he said, I'll, I'll put enmity. And you have that battle throughout the Old Testament times. And he said, He shall bruise thy head, thou shalt bruise his heel. You see, a head blow is a deathly blow, but a heel blow is not. A heel blow is talking about the cross and the suffering of Calvary there. And Jesus overcame that. But the head blow, that's his first coming. The second coming, when the Lord Jesus will bruise the head of the serpent and cast him into hell where he belongs. And so we have that promise that was given there in the book of Genesis. And of course the Old Testament is filled with prophecies of his first coming. Uh, we deal with that usually around the Christmas season and uh, where uh, the Bible talks about where he would be born. In uh, uh, Bethlehem there, as Micah the prophet prophesied. And uh, Isaiah talks about his virgin birth, that he would be born of a virgin. In fact, Daniel talks about the time, talks about when he would be born. And all this was prophesied. And over and over in the Gospels, you will have this phrase, this was done that the Scripture might be fulfilled. The Bible said that he died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Jesus Christ fulfilled every prophecy 
uh, that related to his first coming. And I've, I've seen a breakdown of that. I don't know uh, off of my top of my head the, uh, what that is, but uh, uh, the possibilities in the realm of possibility of that happening is an unbelievable figure that one man could fulfill all those scriptures uh, just coincidentally. That could not happen. That did not happen. And, uh, uh, you know, I don't believe anything is, uh, is by chance in the life of a child of God. Uh, the Bible talks about in, in Psalms 37, 23, the steps of the good man are ordered by the Lord. You know, God keeps his promises. Aren't you glad of that? Every promise that God's ever made, he has kept, is keeping, or will keep. God never breaks a promise. When the Lord, when the Lord does something and promises something, you can count on it, you can believe in it, and uh, you can stake your life on it. So we see the promise of God at Calvary being fulfilled. Why did he have to go to Calvary? In order to fulfill the scripture, he had to die. He had to die, so I wouldn't have to die. And that's a wonderful truth. The Bible said he hath abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel that Jesus Christ has paid our debt of sin. Then not only do we see the promise of God, but we see the love of God. In John 15, verse 3, Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Jesus said that's the greatest love that a man could have. You know, you hear about stories in the battlefield of someone throwing their body on a landmine in order to save their friends. The Lord said, Greater love hath no man than this. That's the greatest expression of love because we value life. We believe life is important and has great value. We believe every life has value, even the unborn. And it's a, tragic, it's a tragic, sad fact that we live in a nation where the value of life is not as important as it used to be. That we live in a country when a million and a half babies can be killed every year. And we still call ourselves a Christian nation. I don't think we're a Christian nation. Thank God for all the Christians in America. But a nation that can tolerate that, there's something wrong in this country. We place great value on life. We place value on, on the aged. And mark it down, if the Lord does not come first, we'll see euthanasia in America. Euthanasia is killing off old, helpless people that are a burden to society. And I think, uh, I think uh, the economy will necessitate it. They talk about the baby boomers. When they all retire, uh, the, the economy will not be able to pay the nursing home bills. And when the Bible said the love of money is the root of all evil, and when it comes down to that, you'll see laws passed uh, that will, uh, uh, you know, and the uh, uh, suicide, assisted suicide is just a step in that direction. So, uh, the value of life. The Lord said, Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. That's the greatest love. But what does the Bible say Jesus did in Romans 5, 8? But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, 
Christ died for us. His love exceeds that. He died for the ungodly. He died for his enemies. He died for sinners. That's love beyond what we know anything about. Would you die for Saddam Hussein? Probably not. You'd probably like to see him dead. <laughs> probably no one want to die for him, but you know Jesus died for him. You know that? Yes, he did. And Saddam Hussein could be saved if he had called on the Lord and admit his, he's a sinner just like any other sinner and call on the Lord and ask the Lord to save him. The Lord is saving. Sure would. In spite of his wicked heart, he could still be saved. That's love, isn't it? That's love beyond comprehension. That's love beyond degree. That's love that surpasses any love known to man. John 3, 16, that blessed verse, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. You know, that's what love is. People say, I'm in love. You know what love? Love is giving. Most, most, most people come together in marriage not for love, but for lust. Lust is what I can get from you. Love is what I'm willing to sacrifice and give. And that's what's missing in, in homes. That's what's missing in society is we are so self-centered that we don't really understand what love really is. But uh, God so loved the world, love held him to the cross, love caused him to die when he could have called for 12 legions of angels to deliver him from the cross. He stayed on that cross for you and for me. I remember a story that's always been a blessing to me of this man who operated this drawbridge for the ships to go through, and when the ship would come, he would he would open, he would stop the the or the traffic would stop, the signs would go up stopping the traffic, and and uh, uh, he was the train. If I if I remember, I think it was a train. The train crossed, and and when the train would come, he would lower the bridge, and the train would go across, and when the ship came through, he would raise the bridge and the ships would go through. And one day, he took his son to work with him. And they were eating lunch. And he forgot about the time. He had a definite schedule when the trains would come, when the ships would come. And he was so involved with his son that he forgot about uh, it was time for the train and, and the, the, bridge was, the bridge was up. And so he had to make a decision. He had to quickly lower the bridge for... Uh, the train to get across. But in the midst of all the confusion and all his son got caught in, the, in, in what would be part of the mechanism that, that would lower that bridge. And he must make a decision. I saved my son. And the train plunges off and kills all those people on the train. What must I do? If I lower the bridge, my son dies. If I leave the bridge up, I save my son, but the people on the train die. 
And so in that as his mind is frantic, what must I do? He made that decision and lowered the bridge, crushing his only son. And the train went across the bridge. And he saw the people sipping their coffee and laughing and having a big time. And he looked at those people as they went by and he said, Don't you care? I sacrificed my son for you. Don't you really care? And I think that story illustrates how God feels many times. That the message of the Lord Jesus Christ and his sacrifice on a cross has been hurled around this world and yet people go on their merry way and live their life and their self-interest and with attitude that I really don't care. I really don't care. We see the love of God. Number three, we see the justice of God. You know, God is a God of love and a God of mercy and a God of grace, but he's also a God of justice. Sin must be paid for. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be the made the righteousness of God in him. And on the cross, Jesus was dying my death. On the cross, he said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That is the only time that... that uh, Jesus ever referred to the Father as God. Now why did he address him in that way? He always addressed him as Father. Because Jesus was dying the death of the sinner. He was dying in my place. When, when he was dying on that cross, Dean Silver was on the cross. You were there. And when God was judging him, he saw us. And he poured out his wrath upon him. And he forsook his only son. I don't understand everything about the triune God. How God can manifest himself in three persons and yet be one God. I don't comprehend all that, but I believe it. And so he says, though he's dying our death. And that's what Jesus Christ did. He was separated from God he, he was crying the cry of Adam and Eve when they were driven out of the Garden of Eden. And the cry of Cain when Cain says, my punishment is greater than I can bear. That was the cry. The justice of God had to be satisfied. God is a just God. The demands of a holy law must be satisfied. We're all lawbreakers, you know that? The Bible said, For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. James 2.10. Galatians 3.10 says, Cursed is everyone that contendeth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Can any of us satisfy that demand? Could we stand today and say, I've, I've kept the law all of my life. I've never broken one commandment. And the Lord said, If you break one, you're guilty of all. but for me to go to heaven. The demands of that perfect law have to be satisfied. And the, the, you say, well, I've never killed anyone. 
Bible says, No murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. And he says, If you hate your brother without a cause, you're a murderer. He said, I've never committed adultery. But the Lord said, If you look on a woman to lust, you've committed adultery in your heart. We're all lawbreakers. And the penalty for breaking those laws is death. But the reason I can go free is because somebody died in my place. And that somebody is Jesus Christ. The justice of God. Listen to what Romans 8.32 says. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Isaiah 53.10 says, Yet it pleased the Lord uh, to bruise him. It pleased God to bruise Christ and because of what will be accomplished. Hebrews said, Looking into Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the Father. In Romans 3, 26, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Again, the justice of God. God is a just God. You know, the, you know, many people I talk to, they think, well, you know, I'm gonna, I, you know, I think if I try to do right, if I do my best, I thank the Lord. God's a good God. Yes, God's good. I thank the Lord will let me into heaven. No, he won't. He cannot let you into heaven on the basis of his goodness or the basis of his mercy or the basis of his grace if you reject it. God is the God of justice. He's a just God. And in order for me to go to heaven, you to go to heaven, his justice has to be satisfied. And through Jesus Christ, he can be just and the justifier. I mean, he can be just and let me go. That's an amazing truth. You know, we have laws. We live in a land of, of laws. And uh, the law has to be carried out. And here's a judge that sits on the bench and is charged with the responsibility of carrying out the laws that have been made. He has, he has, to, he has to follow the law. He has to, uh, to give out the law. And let's say here's a criminal. Let's, let's say I'm the criminal and I'm before the judge. And the judge finds me $10,000. Let's say I don't have 10 cents. He says $10,000 or so long in prison. But let's say, Brother Ted McKinney there, he's my friend. He's a millionaire. Not really, I don't guess, I don't know. <laughs> But uh, let's say Ted, you know, I don't have nothing. Let's say Ted comes up and says, Judge, here's a check for $10,000. Here's the money. You know what the judge say? He say, you're free. You're free to go. Not because anything I've done, because what Ted done. And that's how God can be just and justify me, see. You say, I'm a sinner. I'm still a sinner. I'm a saved sinner. 
I still fail. I could never be good enough to go to heaven. I can't pay my own debt. I don't have anything to pay with. And so here I am condemned to hell forever, and Jesus walks up and says, I'll pay his debt. <laughs> he can go free. That's exactly what happened to every one of us that are saved. And if you understand that today, if you can comprehend that, you'll never believe anymore that you've got anything to do with it except take it. <laughs> you know, we have nothing to pay. We have nothing to bring. We have, we have no goodness of our own. It's all Him. And we owe it all to Him. We owe all of our praise. And may God help us to realize that. Let's bow our heads, please.